0: Who here likes surprise endings? Right? I'm getting some habsies. Surprise endings can be the worst, right? They can be the worst when they're when they're cheap, not well-crafted. You feel like you've been tricked by the director or the writers or whatever. Especially, it seems like for me when I'm watching like a series and it's good for a while and then it's like season three and they're just like making stuff up. And you're like... I'm out. I, 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 why, why, why did I waste all of this time with all of this trickery? I, in some ways, I hate surprise endings when they're not well crafted. But when a when a surprise ending is well crafted, for those of you who put your hands up, there are a few things like it. When, when you have that aha moment and you, you're like, "Oh, I get it." Oh. Ah, uh, I see, and you see how whoever wrote the script was masterful, and how the whole thing is building, and how it all fits together, and it's all part of what really is, is a surprise to you, but now what do you want to do? You want to go back and watch it again, so you can see how it all happens. Uh, I, 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 I love doing this as I'm getting older, and having kids grow up, and you know it's kind of the rite of passage, and you're like, okay, they're old enough to see this now. You, oh, we're going to watch this movie. It's awesome, but don't look anything up, right? Spoiler alert. If anybody wants to talk to you, la, 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 la. I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular and, and it's, it's just classic. But if you know the spoiler, it's not as classic. Okay. I think Matthew is trying to do that in the gospel according to Matthew. Not a cheap surprise ending. I hate it when people pretend like Jesus is the surprise ending of the Bible. I don't think that's the case. In a cheap sense. But in a masterful, well-crafted, thought-out, pre-planned, all along sense, he's the surprise ending. They didn't know all, the, nobody knew all of the details, the intricacies, right? Exactly when and how. I'm thinking like of Second Peter in, in Matthew's gospel account, it's like he's, he's playing, like when I want to play dad with my kids, he's taking us by the hand and saying, you got to see this. Uh, wait till you see how Jesus is the surprise ending and you'll go, oh, now, now I want to rewatch the whole thing. Now I, I want to read the whole Bible because I'm going to read the whole Bible differently because the things, the dots he connects... Are amazing. He, he, he's not doing um, allegory. He's not finding some kind of hidden meanings because of his own ingenuity and creativity. But, but he's a good study. He's a good studier. And he's saying, look at the dots. Let me help you see the dots. And you'll never, ever, ever, ever think the same about the drama of redemption. Because it has been an unfolding drama all along. And Jesus is the culminating high point central figure to the whole thing. It is amazing. It is amazing. I think Matthew is trying to help us read the Bible better. And to read the Bible like Christians. So that we might worship God. So that we might appreciate what God has done for us in Christ like we never have before. It's exciting. It's good news. It's a, it's a really an amazing thing. When we think about Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. Climactic, high point, but all along by design from the eternal God who's had an eternal plan that starts even pre-Genesis. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the second half of Matthew chapter 2. Okay? And we're going to, to, to be able to see Matthew highlighting two what he calls fulfillments. Okay? Two fulfillments. And these are throughout Matthew's gospel account. We've already seen these. And we're going to highlight two of these fulfillments in our text this morning as we work our way through. We saw one last time. We'll see two this morning. But we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. And I correct myself. We're not looking at Matthew. We're looking at the gospel. I always do this. Or I try to always do this. I didn't, so I'm correcting myself. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, Matthew. Matthew's not the Savior. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. It's about him. Okay, let's go ahead and begin looking at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 16, as we look at the first fulfillment. It says in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. To review, you all know the story, 99% of you do, right? So, so the, the, the wise men, the, the pagan astrologers, they follow the star. Now we know about how long they've been following the star. And they go and, and they go to Jerusalem because that's the capital city and they want to know and so they, where he's going to be born. And so the Bible scholars tell them it's going to be in Bethlehem. So they go to Bethlehem and Herod the Great, and he's called Herod the Great for good reason because he's smart, he's powerful, and he's bad. But Herod the Great says, oh yeah, when you go to Bethlehem and you find him, send word back so I too can go and worship, and we know he doesn't want to go and worship, because he's a megalomaniac, my favorite word perhaps, right? He's a piece of work, he's an egomaniac times a bazillion, and he doesn't want any rival kind of kings, and so he's going to have him killed. Well, Bethlehem's just down the road, so he should have heard by now, and he hasn't heard by now, so he knows he's been tricked by them, and so he is going to... Slaughter the innocents. There's one way to solve the problem. We'll just kill all the baby boys that fit that age range is what Herod's up to. I think you should take particular note as you're studying the Bible in Matthew 2 in verse 16 where it says, Then Herod, and then I circled, furious. If you have Herod with all of the power that he has at his fingertips... I said last week, and if you weren't here, when, when, when you go to Israel, you think it's all about Herod. You're so impressed with Herod, it's not even funny. Because a lot of the things you see, you wouldn't be seeing if it weren't for Herod. Whether it's rebuilding the temple for the Jews, amazing. It's, it's Herod's doing uh, Masada, it's Herod's doing it, in one sense, um, uh, some maybe 15 palaces and all of the great things that he did and uh, the ingenuity and engineering, I don't want to re-preach last week, Herod is great and now Herod the great is furious and so you've got a fury that would be unmatched. First century Middle East is, is not a quiet soft place where everybody's nice and it's nice to be nice. There are lots of bad characters and bad players, but when one stands out like Herod, he must really, really, really be a piece of work. And he was, and he is. One scholar says, the cruelty of Herod had become proverbial even in Rome. He had three of his... Sons killed when he himself was near death. He left orders that one member of every family in the region should be executed on his death so that the whole nation would be in mourning. Thankfully, that wasn't carried out. But the guy... Now, there's no question in my mind with Herod and because of what we're going to see and what Matthew does... Herod's going to kill all the babies because he feels threatened. There's no question in my mind that there is a deliberate parallel between Jesus and someone else. And that would be Moses. Exodus chapter 1 verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you he shall cast into the Nile. There is the parallel going on. They're not exactly the same. But there are They're similarities. We're going to see it in the Sermon on the Mount when we get there in Matthew chapter 5. I I should say there are differences though too. And so I I don't want to get us too far off track. um, But sometimes if you were to ask me, do you think Jesus is the new Moses? What do you think I would say? Depends what you mean, right? Depends what you mean because there are definite striking similarities. We're seeing it here and we're going to see it again and again. But in other ways, they're very, very different right? Sometimes people say, well, he's the new Moses because, you know, Moses gave us a really strict law. And then Jesus gave gave us an easy law that we can, we can accomplish with God's enabling power. And I go, are you selling land, <laughs> right? It's like swamp land to build a castle. Uh, I don't think so. We're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount. If anything, Jesus just, just zeros in and puts a finer point on it. He doesn't make it easier. No way. He makes it clear that we can't do it, and so he fulfills it. But I digress. But there certainly is a sense in which there's there's parallels and similarities. And I think you should be seeing that. Bible scholars call it typology. Moses is a type of Jesus. He's going to be the deliverer, not a perfect one. He's great, but not great enough. And now we have the ultimate greater deliverer for his people. Let's move on to verse 17. More, more dot connecting by Matthew. Then was fulfilled. So I'm going to highlight that because he's going to say that again with a second fulfillment. He's already said it earlier in chapter 2. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And he's going to quote Jeremiah 31. Here we go. Verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children... She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now just pretend like you don't know anything about the Bible. And that's not a stretch for some of us, right? You read that and you go, Huh, I'm sure that's true and interesting, but not really sure of why that's significant. But now pretend like you are a first century Jew or even Before that or after that. You're a well-informed Jew and you understand uh, the Old Testament and you understand Jewish tradition. And you go, oh, he's making that connection? That's an interesting connection. First of all, let's notice that that Rachel has been dead since Genesis 35. Rachel's, Rachel's long dead. So Jeremiah is talking about Rachel way, 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 way later. What, what's the significance, and what about Rama? Well, Rama is outside of Jerusalem, to the north, and if you were, uh, if let me let me back up. Rachel ends up being used as sort of like the mother of Israel, and she weeps when the sons of Israel are exiled. The children of Israel are exiled when they haul the men off so they don't have military force and power anymore, which has been done throughout their history. And Rachel is personified like all the mothers of Israel um, are, are symbolized by Rachel weeping over the death of her children. Okay? So it, it's, it's, he, he doesn't mean it in a literalistic sense because, again, she's been dead since Genesis 35. But this is how Israel would, Israel would speak as they're persecuted, as they're exiled, as their men are marched through Ramah to the north, as they're being exiled by those who took captives from the north and they're taking them back to the north. They're going to march them through Ramah. That's why that's mentioned. So it's very symbolic. Okay, it's emblematic. It's, it's personified. And does that make sense? It's not super complicated, but first blush, you go, what? Here, you've got the slaughter of the babies. Grief-stricken mothers. This is terrible. This is awful. What could be worse than to have your young child murdered? This is terrible. Okay? But this sort of thing has been going on. Okay, persecuted, the people of God persecuted, exiled, 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 persecuted, 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 defeated, defeated, defeated. And now we have like the ultimate in Jeremiah 31. Because it's the ultimate, because in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, the verse uh, that they reference, verse 15, is nestled in. And what's Jeremiah 31 about? I mean, if you ask me, I don't know a lot about the Bible, right? (laughs) Don't say amen. (laughs) Amen. I don't have a good or great memory, but I have categories for things. And if you say "New Covenant," I say Jeremiah thirty-one, or if you say Jeremiah thirty-one, I say, "Oh, New Covenant." I know, I know, I know what that is. It's New Covenant. I mean, if it's about anything, it's not about Rama and Rachel. It's about new covenant fulfillment. But it is about Rachel and Rama because you've got this long history of exile. You've got this long history of persecution. You've got the weeping and grief that's bad. And now here we have the climactic weeping and grief because we have the one, get this, the one who is going to fulfill the new covenant. The one we've been waiting for. This is it, folks. He's the one. This is the, the, the ultimate time of Rachel's grief. This is the ultimate. But grief is going to be met with comfort like never before. Let me use a synonym for that. It's a little bit ratcheted up. Salvation. He came, chapter 1, verse 21, to save his people, to deliver his people. The final, ultimate deliverer, right? They were exiled and then they are brought out of exile. By a deliverer. Let's say Moses. But it's temporary. It doesn't really last. It's it's not the ultimate. Here we have the one we've been waiting for. Matthew is saying, let me take you by the hand and connect dots for you. This is the the fulfillment. This is it. He's the one. He's the ultimate deliverer. I have all kinds of notes and quotes and I don't even need to read read them because I think I did a pretty pretty good job of explaining that. By the way, if you have a Reformation study Bible, there's a great note in there, and I'll just read part of it, but they do a great job of just making this really simple. In the next section of Jeremiah's prophecy, he foresees the return from exile, a new exodus. Matthew's use of this prophecy appears to portray Jesus as a new Moses, the one who led Joseph's descendants out of Egypt. Who fulfills the prophecy of a second exodus. Like Moses, Jesus escapes slaughter as an infant. Like Moses, he is sent to rescue God's chosen ones. I think that's right. This morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in those familiar words from Jesus, we hear New Covenant. Okay? Jesus meets the obligations. Jesus does everything perfectly. Jesus atones for our sins perfectly. Final, done, the ultimate high priest, the ultimate representative. And the book of Hebrews makes it clear in chapter 8 and in chapter 10, Jesus is the one who fulfills the new covenant, the one anticipated in Jeremiah 31. Matthew is taking you by the hand and connecting dots and saying, even this Rama, Rachel weeping is solved. There will be no more ultimate grief from the mothers of Israel. It's great stuff. I want to take the time to read Hebrews chapter 8. I won't do that. Oh, I lied. I'll just read a little bit of it. (laughs) I will establish a new covenant, not like the covenant that made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, right? They didn't keep their end of the deal. Human beings related to Adam don't and can't. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, or excuse me, into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. I'm skipping a little bit. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. All along the problem has been their iniquities. So we, ha- we have to have a solution. We have to have a greater one to fulfill the obligations to not only do the right thing, but to atone for doing the wrong things. He does it. He's the one. And so now, even some of uh, what we might have thought was a surprise ending isn't really a surprise ending. Matthew's connecting dots. It Makes me want to go back and read my whole Bible again again if we have an eternal God who's had a plan all along and to have it culminate in Christ ultimately Ephesians 2 Ephesians 1 the pieces fit together Matthew's saying look at the connection did you see that? did you notice that? maybe you should read it again did you see that? did you notice that? I think it's fascinating fascinating Matthew didn't attend the class that says you shouldn't read the old in light of the new. He didn't go to that class. He's saying, now you're going to be dying to read the old. By the way, if you haven't been here lately, I've talked about that. I want to read the new in light of the old and the old in light of the new. And we'll talk more about that even this morning. This is amazing stuff. Amazing. Fulfillment found in Jesus. And it's got permanence because it's new covenant realities. It's done. We rest in Him. Okay, ready to keep moving? You sure? Okay. Let's go to the second fulfillment. Here we have it in verse 19 but herod but excuse me it says in verse 19 but when herod died and i can't help myself and say that has a real ring to it right you know anything about anything you go herod died we're dancing in the streets this is this is a, this is a good thing but when herod died and historically it's a huge event when herod died Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Who's been to Egypt? Anybody in this room been to Egypt? I, I see at least two. Anybody over here? We're going to have a contest. Uh, We got, we got, okay, we're doing good. Anybody over here? My side's the losing side. <laughs> I've, I've been from here to that screen, to, to Egypt, that close. I stared at the guard. I had a plane ticket with my name on it, but because of trouble in Egypt, I didn't get to go. I, wa- I want to go to Egypt. Anyway, I digress. There's trouble in Israel. So Jesus, remember, I'm, I, I digressed on purpose. Jesus is taken to Egypt to preserve his life. But we also learned last time it was to fulfill something, right? Chapter two, verse fifteen. I'm just reviewing. They're going to go to Egypt, Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus, so that out of Egypt God will call his son. Okay. Again, Matthew's teaching us how to read the Bible because in, in Matthew two fifteen, is it two fifteen? Yeah? Do I need to look at my notes? I'm counting on you guys. This is a two-way street, right? So, so now, now it's actually being fulfilled. Going to Egypt doesn't fulfill it. But 2.15, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Now he, now it's actually happening, right? So I said we're going to see two fulfillments. In one sense, we're seeing three because of what we saw last week. That's it. So again, quoting, referencing Hosea 11.1, that was Israel in Hosea. Israel is the son, and Israel the son is called out of Egypt. But now Matthew's saying, hey... Let me help you understand, there's something greater involved, there's a greater son that God is calling out of Egypt, and clearly in Matthew chapter 2 verse 15, it's not the nation of Israel, it's Jesus, the son. And so he's the ultimate one, he's the loyal son, the new covenant upholder, fulfiller son. We're meant to see that. We're meant to see things differently, that history's all along been going somewhere, building, 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 and he's the centerpiece of the whole thing. I love seeing the connections. So the unrest in Egypt has <clears throat> excuse me in Israel has led to fulfillment coming out of Egypt. And now we go to verse 21. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So there it is. There we find our fulfillment of 215. Then verse 22 says let's keep going. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, that would be southern Jerusalem, or south of Jerusalem, excuse me, south of Jerusalem, that region. In place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So, his son is given reign over a certain area, region, but not the whole. So, when Joseph comes back, they're going to go to the Galilee region, which is to the north. See, On a map, it's pretty simple. Just think Sea of Galilee is to the north. And to the south is Dead Sea, connected by the Jordan River. So if, you've, if you understand that much, you're qualified, okay? So they go up to the Galilee region, and in the Galilee region, what we're going to see is Nazareth. So they're going to go there because they don't want to be under uh, threat of Herod's son, who's in charge of the southern region. If you're interested, Archelaus was not quite the leader that his dad was. The Romans deposed him in AD 6. But at this point in time, where Joseph and Mary and Jesus go to Nazareth, we have Herod Antipas in charge of the Galilee region. Now we go to verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And that is... Particular. Or maybe I should say peculiar. So second fulfillment, they're going to live in Nazareth. So Jesus is called a Nazarene. And that's going to fulfill that. That's peculiar because there's no Old Testament verse that says that's a prophecy. In what sense does it fulfill something to have Jesus grow up in Nazareth What's Matthew doing? Isn't it a mistake? I don't think it's a mistake. I think our first clue is when it says prophets. He's not saying, and this fulfills what the prophet said, like Jeremiah earlier. No, this fulfills what the prophets said. So either two, several, many, or all. And I think that helps us a little bit. Some people think it's because... um Of Samson not very many people hold that view Um, it's grammatically hard to do but but Samson was uh, a Nazarite and you know Samson is supernaturally strong and Jesus is supernaturally strong I I get it, I agree with all that but Jesus wasn't a Nazarite, he didn't take a Nazarite vow Um, I think more than likely and I think most Bible scholars are on the same page here, Bible believing ones It has to do with humility. Nazareth is podunk. Nazareth is wrong side of the tracks. Nazareth is small town. Nazareth is not really where you want to be from. In the book of Acts, Christians were spoken of negatively as the sect from Nazareth wasn't a compliment. Okay? That's Acts chapter 24, verse 5. Or perhaps you know John chapter 1, verse 46. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of where? Nazareth? Nazareth? It's just the stereotypical town from the other side of the river. The Platte, surely. You guys just assume the worst. My wife's from Council Bluff, so I'm going to have a hard time when I go home. But anyway, if you're from Nazareth, you're not from a great place. Now what's fascinating is he's from Bethlehem, which actually is supposed to be it's, it's a great place, because Bethlehem's where David was born. Right? We talked about that. He, he, It's Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem. That's significant. That's great. Because he's the greater David. He's the ultimate David. He's the royalty. He's the one who acts as he will rule and reign forever. And he's the one. He's the fulfillment. And so the, you, you have a high, exalted, kingly office. He's from the right place. And he's also humility, humble, lowly from the wrong place. Because Jesus both. And the prophets speak of him in both ways. You you know Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And even though that seems kind of weird and ominous, it's not a positive. Because when we go on to read what he says, we know that he means something by that that's not positive. It's without the pomp and circumstance. It's it's, It's without the grandeur It's out without the royalty because he goes on to say he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, despised and rejected, and you know, man of sorrows. I think that's what Matthew's up to. I think Matthew wants us to see fulfillment in Nazareth, humility. You know what? That's what the prophets have been telling us. Just like they were telling us about the positive, they're telling us about the the humble side of things. He's going to give himself up for us. I doubt you would get that just reading your Old Testament. But I suggest that Matthew would now like you to think in those terms. Let me show you this. Wait till you see this. It's the aha moment. It's not the cheap surprise ending. It's the masterfully crafted, intricate, amazing. Jesus is the one who fulfills what the prophets were anticipating. Holistically, by and large, multiple ones, many of them, if not more than that. I think Matthew's trying to show us how to read our Bibles. Matthew's account, he wants us to read Matthew's account right. Chapter 1, verse 21, he came to save his people from their sins. So we're going to keep that in mind as we read the whole. But he's also talking about fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. And in some ways, they don't look like traditional fulfillments. You know what they look more like? They look like parallels. Oh, I, I see that with Jesus. And I see that with Moses. They're not exactly the same. There's some pretty marked differences, but there's definitely similarities. We're going from Moses the great, but not great, great, to Jesus the ultimate great, great one. That's a parallel. And the mourning, oh, this is the ultimate mourning, but the ultimate comfort in New Covenant. These are, let's call them, I would call them purposeful parallels. Unfolding. All along, like there's been a plan all along. Because there has been. I like Hebrews chapter 1 so much because it gives us this sense. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, I always like to say he means by that, these culminating high point apex fulfillment days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Lastly, he speaks through his son. But you know what? Something happened before that. The creation of the world. Oh, that's even way, 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 way long ago. And that was through Jesus. I think the author of Hebrews and Matthew, if they weren't friends, they would make good friends. Because the author of Hebrews does the same kind of thing. Takes us by the hand and says, let me show you how to read the Old Testament. It's anticipating Jesus and it's fulfilled in Jesus. One of the hardest classes I've ever taken was a a class on the book of Hebrews from D.A. Carson. Probably because he gave us a test. What doctoral class do you have when you take a final? I'm still, I still have a burn in my saddle about that. Stressed out all week because I have to take a test and I got a B of all things. I think I got a B plus, but seriously? <sighs> anyway. <laughs> but I'll never forget, it was the best, maybe the best class I ever took. Hardest, but probably best. And I don't want to quote him because I don't want to, say something he didn't say but my takeaway just was the author of Hebrews has a sense has a sense about him and how to read the Old Testament almost like it's an art not, not as some sort of allegorical finding things where they're not meant to be but, but there's a sense in which as a new covenant believer able to read it and go well, let me show you this Did you notice this? Did you make this connection? Did you connect these dots? He has a sense about him that enables him to read the whole thing and think about how Jesus connects all of the dots. I think that's helpful. On the negative side of this, and we'll end with this, because it's good to end on a negative. (laughs) No, we won't do that. We'll end on a positive. Uh, But in a negative sense, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 seems to be confronting the opposite problem, okay? In 2 Corinthians 3, it talks about the new covenant. And there are those who pretend like there is no new covenant, that Jesus doesn't fulfill it, and they read about the old covenant ignoring Jesus. And the Apostle Paul takes the gloves off and says, "Why?" I'm paraphrasing, but I am going to read it, and I'd love to have you read it. Why in the world would you try to pretend like Jesus isn't the fulfillment? It doesn't make any sense at all to pretend like you're an unbeliever when you read the Bible. So if you would, look at Second Corinthians chapter 3 with me because I think what Matthew's doing positively, what the author of Hebrews is doing positively for the most part, the apostle Paul is doing negatively. Okay? So he's going to take us by the hand and say, stay away from people who try to tell you to pretend like you're an unbeliever when you read the Bible. Avoid them. Avoid those who have infiltrated the Corinthian congregation. And then we'll talk about new covenant fulfillment. Here we go. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14 to 18. It says in verse 14, But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. spiritual blinders on. Christ is the interpretive key to the whole thing. Verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, all believers, unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Ah, we see the connections. We see how it all comes to culmination in Christ, are being transformed into the same image of the... I can't even talk, I'm so excited. Into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He's saying, why in the world would you want to pretend like that? It doesn't make any sense. Your freedom is found seeing that Christ has fulfilled it. In one sense, the way to keep people in bondage is to pretend like there's no Jesus and just give them rules and laws and all the stuff to do and go get busy following the principles. And he's saying, there's no freedom in that. These people are taking advantage of you. Let me tell you the freedom. It's in Christ. Look to Christ. Worship Christ. Exalt Christ. He's the answer. It's in him. And so I do think ultimately we're going to have the author of Hebrews, friends with Matthew, Friends with Paul, I think they're all trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to do the same thing as a Christian pastor. Jesus is the ultimate, amazing, well crafted, pre planned, all along, in all the right senses, none of the bad senses. How can I qualify it more? Surprise ending. The aha moment. The one we've all been waiting for who fulfills the obligations. When you eat and drink, we're remembering Him and what He's accomplished. No doubt the Lord knew we would forget. No doubt the Lord knew that we somehow like to put veils over our spiritual eyes. How crazy is that? I know. So until He comes again, He's instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, or communion, that we eat and drink in remembrance of Him. New covenant, accomplished, fulfilled, forgiveness, Reconciliation, acceptance by God, not because of what we do on our spiritual treadmills, but because of what he has accomplished. Dots have been connected. He is the one all of human history had been waiting for. It's in him. So with that in mind, we're ending on a good note. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords and that he is not against us. We are thankful that He came to earth as we've been learning not to make people savable, but to save His people from their sins, that that He came on a rescue mission and He was absolutely successful. And we're thankful to know that that's good news to us and good news to those who are our fellow sinners. And we're thankful to eat and drink in a very simple yet profound way, even this morning in remembrance of Christ. May the Holy Spirit work supernaturally in our midst even now and as we eat and as we drink that we would find ourselves refreshed, encouraged, built up in the faith and ready to live for the glory of Christ regardless of what happens in our temporary existence. We know that we've trusted in one who's conquered sin and death and who's been raised from the dead and he's done so on our behalf. May we respond with gratitude and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.